So my family and I, we just got back from vacation. Now, we were in the Adirondack Mountains, uh, a place I spent a lot of time as a child, and it was amazing. And I could tell you a story about our trip, and it took a lot of work and preparation and, and involvement to get everything together, but I hope you came to hear something better than my vacation stories. We're going to look at something much, much bigger. We're going to look at God's story, specifically history, which is a story. And it's a true story, and God is its author. But God's planning and involvement in his story are much larger than mine in planning a vacation. God's hand is at work constantly, and today we're going to look at how he's guided and cared for the people of the world since the beginning of the time to the founding of the church. See, when I looked at Acts and we started to get to the end here, I really began to see that this needed to be told in a larger context. So today, we're going to think about that larger context. You know, as humans, we are bad at thinking of, of big numbers. For example, if you guys have heard me preach before, you know I tend to pay attention to the world of technology. And Apple this week had an earnings call in which they announced they had $260 billion in cash on hand. Now, that's a really big number. We all know that, but it's still abstract. Right? And so if we try to get our head around it, we can't really think of how much money that is. But, but I can say it this way. If Apple wanted to, they could buy the entire U.S. auto industry and have $100 billion left over. Right? But those are still really big numbers. So they just built a new headquarters, and it's round. And I thought, you know, in the middle, they could build a bonfire, and they could burn a million dollars a day for 700 years and not run out of money. Okay, now it makes sense, right? Now you can begin to see how much money that is. So why do I talk about that, right? Because the reason I do is because we have the same problem understanding God. God is way bigger than Apple. He'll be long, around long after they've gone bankrupt, right? And that's not a diss on Apple. That's just true. God is eternal. Apple's not, right? So he'll be around longer than they will. Um, <clears throat> but we have the same problem understanding who God is. So I apologize. If you need a Bible, please put your hand up. Our ushers will get you one. Uh, we're going to open to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. We're going to read the very beginning together. Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. So we know who Moses is, a man of God. Scripture tells us that right there. And it begins like this. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. See, Moses here is trying to help us understand God. In the same way I was trying to help you understand Apple's pile of cash, he's trying to break it down into a smaller, manageable chunk. To God, a, a thousand years feels like a day, or he says a watch of the night, which is two or three hours, right? So for us, it's really hard to fathom a thousand years. If we're lucky, we might live a tenth of that time, right? right? For us, the, a thousand years is unfathomable, but for God, it's like a few hours. It's inconsequential in the course, in the scale in which he thinks, so today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to step back and we're going to take a look at the larger meta-narrative of Scripture. 
And we're going to attempt to have a God's eye view of Scripture. And it starts here. It says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now it's pretty hard to get much earlier than in the beginning. And then in Genesis 1.31 it tells us this. He looked at his creation and God saw all that he has made and it was very good. God created and it was good. It was very good. But what happened next? We messed it up. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. And it corrupted everything. And sin got so bad that by chapter 6 of Genesis, God decided to wipe almost everyone out but who? Noah, right? And just start over. And Noah may have been a righteous man, but he still had a sin nature, and that was still passed on. And sin remained in the world, and things got bad again, until in chapter 11, we see the nations scattered around the globe with mixed languages. The consequences of sin were not trivial. They were massive. And God and sin are incompatible. And the problem is we were made for fellowship with God. But with sin in the way, that fellowship was impossible. Romans 8.22, we'll have it for you on screen, says it this way. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childhood right up to the present time. See, it's not just us that suffer from sin, but all of creation. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been in the room when a woman gives birth. I have. I've heard it described as beautiful. That is a lie. It is not beautiful. It is horrible, right? It involves the woman you love, hopefully if you're there, you love this woman, right? going through an incredible amount of pain that's somewhat your fault, right? And you really can't do anything about it except stand there and look stupid. I have been there and I know how this goes. Now for her, it's even worse. She basically takes a bowling ball and pushes it through a straw, right? And that's her experience. It is a picture of pain. That's the picture of what creation is going through that Scripture paints for us. Now, thankfully, God's more than a vacation planner. He is the creator of the universe. He has a much better story to tell, even though our situation was grim. Creation was good, but sin had affected everything. The people that God created for relationship are lost. Right? They're separated from Him and consumed by sin. The world He created for His pleasure is suffering. We need a Savior. But thankfully, God knew that would happen, and he had a plan. Now, God starts this work with a man named Abram, and I didn't mispronounce his name. He started as Abram before God renamed him as Abraham, the father of many. And God told him, God promised him that the redemption of the world would come through his line. And initially, it seemed like that was what the plan was. Abraham, to use the old language, begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat 12 sons who were the 12 tribes of Israel. But if you were here for the series of prophets and kings, what happened to Israel? Israel split because of disobedience and became Israel and Judah. And then as they continued to disobey God and not follow him and not listen, Israel fell and then Judah. So by the time we get to 500, 550 B.C., the children of Abraham are ruling exactly nothing. 
Did God forget His promise? Were God's plans thwarted by the Babylonians? Of course not. Now, we'll come back to this, but I want to pause for a moment. I want you to do, go through a thought experiment with me. Put yourself in the mind of God and imagine that you know the world needs a Savior. You're going to send your son to be that sacrifice, and you need the gospel, that good news of the redemption, to spread to the whole world. How are you going to ensure that that happens? Now, let's just imagine that God likes the beach, which I imagine that he does, and he decides to bring Jesus into the world on the island of Yap. And I've got a picture of where Yap is for you, right? That's the world, and there's a little tiny red dot because the, the dot is so hard to see without the circle, and the arrow's pointing to it there. Yap is a little island in the South Pacific where there are a lot of fish, and there's a lot of coconuts, and a few people. At its high point, Yap had about 20,000 people. And it's pretty, and all the people there need salvation, just like the rest of us. But if God had put Jesus there, he would have undoubtedly healed and saved everyone on that island. But then where does the good news go from there? Well, if we're honest, nowhere. Right? You see where Yap is. It is never going to be the center of world trade and travel. And even if the story did get out after all these years, you know, a couple hours to God, right? If the story finally gets out, how would we treat it? Let's be honest. If a missionary came here from Yap, came to Lidditz and said, I want to tell you about the Savior of the world who came to Yap, we would nod and smile and be polite and think that's a nice island fairy tale, wouldn't we? See, we really wouldn't be willing to trust our eternity to someone with that level of uh, where he came from. Jesus can't come to the world just anywhere. He needs to come to the right location at the right time for the witnesses to be credible and for the word to spread. But here's the problem. As of 500 B.C., the kingdoms of Israel gone and the world speaks a vast number of languages and is widely spread out. Now, one thing that is really cool, I, I noticed this actually this morning, so I mentioned where Yap is, and you see that. But if you look at Africa, right in the middle of our map, and to the, the north you've got Europe, and then you've got Asia, and all of that space, the largest single landmass, right? And where is Israel? Right on the northeast tip of Af Africa there, right in the middle of the largest landmass on the planet. That seems like a pretty good place to put somebody that you want to be able to spread the word, doesn't it? So what did God do? Well, before I answer the question, I want to remind us of a verse that Tony talked about a few weeks back. It's from Romans 13. It says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So what I want to do is walk through some things that are not lucky circumstance. It's the divine plan of God. The prophet Daniel was given a picture of what it would look like hundreds of years before it happened. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 11. Now, Daniel's a little right of where we were in Psalms. And 11 is in the part of Daniel that you probably stop reading because it gets really confusing. Right? <clears throat> when we read Daniel, which a group of guys and I have done recently, it, you sit here and think, what is all of this about? But it's actually really exciting. 
So we're going to read Daniel 11, starting in verse 2. I love that not all of you are using your phones because I can know how long to wait until you get there. So starting in verse 2, Now then I tell you the truth, three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So why does this matter? Well, Israel and Judah were conquered by Babylon. Babylon was conquered by Persia. And Xerxes is the fourth Persian king mentioned by Daniel who attacked Greece. And then we read about Alexander the Great. A mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. Daniel continues by prophesying that Alexander's empire would be broken up into four pieces and that none of it would go to his descendants or be as powerful as when he ruled. And this is exactly what happened. Exactly. It is so precise that for years scholars said there's just no way Daniel was written ahead of when all this happened. It had to be later. And then we get the Dead Sea Scrolls and we see that all this stuff is actually shown as being accepted and known by that early date. It's awesome. God showed Daniel exactly what he was planning to do. God was clearly involved in the rising and falling of pagan empires. God allowed Alexander to do what he did, and he was involved in creating the right time and place for Jesus to come and for the gospel to spread. Now let me, let me make the connection for you. Israel and Judah were conquered by Babylon, but Babylon didn't last. It was conquered by the Persians who created an empire that encompassed Babylon and what used to be Israel and Judah. Egypt, Asia, and more. And while impressive, it was nothing compared to what Alexander did. Alexander the Great. I've got a slide here I want to show you. See, for most of us, we've heard the name. We know Alexander the Great, maybe by name. But what we don't realize was just how much territory he conquered. You look at that, that is a massive piece in the middle of the world. And when he conquered, he introduced the Greek language, the Greek thought, and Greek culture to his entire territory. Alexander changed history and unified much of the world under a single language. Now his reign was amazing and it was short. It was only 13 years. And after his death in 323 BC, his kingdom was divided and fell in short order, allowing the rise of the Roman Empire. But what's remarkable is that Greek remained. The Greek language, the Greek influence Greek became the trade language of the world even after Rome had conquered the majority of Alexander's territory. Latin would become important eventually, but at the time of Christ, Greek was the language of the world because of Alexander the Great. Now, what did this mean? Well, it meant the New Testament could be written in Greek and read by churches all over the place without being translated. It also meant that as the word spread, there was a common language to work with. And where there wasn't, the Holy Spirit intervened, as we saw in Acts 2. But Rome not only conquered. They created a mighty empire the likes of which the world has never seen again. 
You know, one of the hallmarks of the Roman Empire was peace and stability. There's even a term for it. Anybody know it? No, you guys are either more awake than the first service or just louder. Uh, Pax Romana is exactly right. It was a period of time between 27 B.C. and 235 A.D. Now, 27 B.C. is when Caesar defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And after that victory, the world was more or less at peace for 250 years. Now again, big numbers make it hard for us to reconcile. None of us have been around for 250 years. So let me put it this way. Imagine that if at the end of the Revolutionary War, like 1783, right? Um, 83, 85? 1780s, how about that? Uh, (laughs) Let's not argue my dates. Um, So, If at the end of the Revolutionary War was the last time the United States had used our army, in fact, in that time, we've had about a hundred conflicts, whether it was with Indian nations or various wars all the way up to World War I and World War II being massive engagements. There have been about a hundred times when the U.S. military has been involved in a conflict in that 200 and however many years we're at now, almost 240. So we're getting to 250, but we're not there yet. That entire time, the Roman Empire was at peace. One of the elements of securing peace was an army that was mobile. In order to hold an empire that large, you need a lot of troops. And the innovation that Rome brought to the world was a system of wide roads. Let me show you one. This allowed them to move their armies around quickly and allowed you to have a smaller army because you could move the troops to where you needed them. But one of the cool things about roads is they're not only for the use of the army, right? These roads opened up the empire to trade and to travel. So this system facilitated trade throughout the empire and allowed for safe movement of people over great distances, something that was previously very dangerous. These roads were so well built, many of them still exist, and we can show you what they look like. It is this system that brought about the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. And let me show you a picture of where those roads connected. You can see you know, these, the black roads all over the Roman Empire, and then the green being all the shipping lanes and the sea things that Paul was, was not afraid to make use of. See, all roads lead to Rome wasn't just a saying, it was true. <clears throat> From Rome, you had access to the entire Roman Empire and beyond. Quite literally, the gospel's arrival in Rome was the beginning of its journey to the ends of the earth. Right? So we're talking about the third part, journey to the ends of the earth. When Paul reaches Rome, that is the beginning of that spread to to the uttermost parts. Now to be clear, Rome was a pagan empire that worshipped false gods. Rome was an enemy to the church until the conversion of Constantine. But despite the resistance to the gospel, Rome was a tool that God used to spread the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Now, my wife told me after the first service, this is a fire hose of information. And she's right. We've covered a lot in a short time. But let me just try to recap. God created the earth. Sin entered the world. The nations are scattered. A promise is made to Abraham. The nation of Israel rises and then splits into Israel and Judah. Israel and then Judah fall to Babylon. Babylon falls to Persia. Persia falls 
to Greece, and the world learns to speak Greek. Greece falls to Rome, and the world enters a period of peace and stability. Rome builds a system of roads that connect all points of the empire, and then Jesus comes, is crucified, and then resurrected. And then the church is founded. And now we hit Acts. Acts has been an incredible journey. I don't know about you guys, but I have loved walking through the book. From the Ascension, to Pentecost, to the healings, to Stephen, all the incredible things that happened in the early days of the church are exhilarating. And then Paul enters the scene, and we get a picture, an eyewitness account of his missionary journeys. Now, we've been following Paul as he took the gospel everywhere he went, and it culminated in his arrival in Rome. Paul reaches Rome around 61 A.D., and according to Acts 28, verses 16 and 30, Paul was placed under house arrest for a period of about two years and allowed to receive visitors. And that's the end of the book of Acts. For more information on what happened next, we'll have to look elsewhere. Now, if you remember last week, Dan showed us Acts 1.8, where we are told to be witnesses, and he showed how the book is broken into three pieces. Now, maybe you didn't notice, but our series was broken into these three pieces. The first one, you know, Paul's movement that changed the world. The second one, right, the uh, unexpected reach to all people. And finally, the journey to the ends of the earth. Did any of you notice that I did something sinister there? No. This is not about Paul, right? But we tend to read Acts like I changed these, these graphics, that it's all about Paul and about Paul's journeys. In reality, the book of Acts is about the church, right? Paul is more like the best supporting actor in the movie. We see him a lot and we hear him a lot, but it's about the story of the church and the gospel. <clears throat> How does it begin? Well, in Acts 1.8, he says this. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Matthew recorded for us the words of Jesus when he commanded us to make disciples of all nations. And now he's unpacking this for his disciples so they understand their marching orders. The gospel is for everywhere. It's local, it's regional, and it's global. And then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and the church is founded. This is the plan to spread the good news throughout the world to build a church whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus and to spread the word. There is no plan B. Now, as we've worked through Acts, we've seen how God used persecution to spread the gospel to Judea and Samaria, and then we got an eyewitness account of the early ministry of the church, including the missionary work of Paul. So what happened to the rest of the apostles? Well, for whatever reason, Scripture only tells us the fate of two of the apostles, but that doesn't mean the other apostles weren't active. In fact, early church historians do record what the other apostles did. So there were 14 in total. We have the 12 that Jesus chose, right? And then Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas, and then Paul. Although Acts covers some of the gospel's journey to the ends of the earth, God's work is larger than what's recorded in Scripture. So I'd like to walk through what some of these other guys did. And I'm just going to go through them in alphabetical order. We'll start with Andrew at the top there. Hippolytus. Hippolytus was a church historian, and he lived from 170 to 235 A.D. He tells us that Andrew preached to the Scythians, 
which is modern-day Georgia, and that's not near Atlanta. That's Georgia in Europe, okay? And the Thracians, which are modern-day Bulgaria, and that he was crucified in Achaia in Greece. Bartholomew, Hippolytus and Eusebius, another church historian, uh, 3rd century, tells us that Bartholomew preached in India and gave them Matthew's gospel and then was crucified upside down in Armenia. How about James, son of Alphaeus? Well, Hippolytus tells us that James was preaching in Jerusalem when he was stoned to death by the Jews and buried near the temple. And then there's James, the son of Zebedee. Now, this one's easy because it's in the book of Acts. Acts 12, verse 1 and 2 says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Well, there's another James, the son of Zebedee. And according to Hippolytus, sorry, I already talked about him. That's the one who just got crucified. Sorry, stoned. John, son of Zebedee, according to Hippolytus, John was banished by Domitian to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation and then he later died of old age in Ephesus. Judas Iscariot, you remember, he was hung and then his body burst open in the field he bought with the silver. Matthew, Hippolytus, and Eusebius tell us that Matthew is the author of the book of Matthew and that he died in Hyres in what is modern-day Iran. So he's clearly taking the word to Iran. Now Peter, as you can imagine, there's a lot recorded about Peter. Hippolytus, Eusebius, Irenaeus from 2nd century, and Papias, who is 110 AD, they all tell us about Peter. They tell us that it was his words that became the book of Mark. They tell us that he preached in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Batania, Italy, and Asia, and was later crucified upside down by Nero in Rome. Philip, the apostle, not the deacon, Hippolytus tells us that he preached in eastern Turkey and was crucified in Hierapolis. Simon the Zealot, according to Hippolytus, he was the bishop of Jerusalem after James and that he died of old age. Now Thaddeus, who gets forgotten so much we even left him off the PowerPoint, um, according to Hippolytus, he preached in what became modern-day Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and Iran, and he died of old age in Lebanon. He was a pretty active guy. We should get him on the PowerPoint next time. Thomas, according to Hippolytus, he preached in Iran and Afghanistan before he was killed in India. And actually, Indians absolutely say Thomas came there. That is part of their history. And Matthias preached in Jerusalem and then died of old age. And then Paul. There's more to the story of Paul than we have in Acts. We know from Scripture that Paul stayed in Rome and wrote letters to various churches that he had visited because we have those letters. We know them as Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. We also have 1 Timothy and Titus, letters that don't fit the narrative in Acts and are likely from a period between 62 AD and 67 where Paul was free. Now, if you talk to Dan Hollingsworth, he will tell you that the Spaniards are convinced that Paul visited Spain during this time. We don't have any record of that, but the Spaniards are convinced that he did. And finally, we have 2 Timothy, a letter written by Paul where he clearly knew he was close to the end of his time on earth. So here's an interesting comparison. Here's a map of the missionary journeys of Paul, okay? Now, if you look at this map, you can see he starts from Jerusalem and he goes west. And ultimately, he takes the ship and goes all the way west to Rome. Um, and if he went to Spain, he went even further west. Um, and how was he able to travel so far? Well, if we go back to that image of the Roman roads that we looked at earlier, you can see that Paul 
had roads and trade, trade routes that would be very easy for him to use to get all throughout the empire. And whether or not Paul physically went to Spain or elsewhere is irrelevant because from Rome, the gospel, which is the main character in our story, was able to spread one person at a time in any direction over land and sea. Rome was the gateway to the ends of the earth, and as the gospel took hold in Rome, it naturally spread throughout the empire. Think about that. A pagan empire that hated Christians, burned them, killed them, horrible things happened, and yet God used Rome to spread the gospel. Now let's look at where the other disciples went. Right? Peter and Andrew, they went west. We've got a slide that's going to show us. They're the ones that went west. Everyone else more or less went east. The trade route to India would have carried Bartholomew to India, and the trade route through Iran would have taken Thomas to Afghanistan and then up to India. All those disciples, all those areas I talked about, they preached, they went east. So how does the church go from 120 people at Pentecost to an unstoppable force despite fierce opposition from ruling powers? Well, Matthew, Jesus said this. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then in Colossians, let's turn there. Colossians chapter 1. Ross read this during worship and didn't know I was going to use this in the sermon today, which is just awesome. Um, but let's look at Colossians chapter 1. We'll start at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 16, just looking at it again, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And for him. You know, I spent this much time in history because all things were created by him and through him and for him. And I think it's critical that we understand that God moved and orchestrated everything to bring about the perfect time and place for the arrival of Jesus, for his plan of salvation to happen. God is not passive sitting up in heaven wishing we would do something on his behalf. God is active and working to bring the gospel to all people. So what is the gospel? Why did all of history line up for this moment? Well, it's really simple. You know, earlier today I mentioned that sin entered the world in chapter 3 of Genesis. And it's true that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you look at your heart, you know it's true. There's none of us that have managed to measure up. And that's a problem because sin makes us incompatible with God. We're created to be in relationship with Him, but our sin makes that relationship impossible. 
Thankfully, the Bible also tells us that God's love for us was so great that he sent his son to be that perfect sacrifice, even while we were sinners and distant from him. God sent his son Jesus to be Jesus. He sent his son Jesus to earth to live among us. He lived a perfect life, one without sin. With his crucifixion, he died on our behalf as a sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that covers all of our sin if we accept it. And that sacrifice was necessary because removing our sin has a cost. The wages of sin is what? Death, right? Each and every one of us has earned the result of those wages. We've all sinned. We've earned death. That's all we deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Three days later, he arose from the dead. He triumphed over sin and death all in the same moment. He appeared to his apostles and then to over 500 after his resurrection. The world would never be the same. So how do we gain that eternal life? How do we restore the broken fellowship between us and God? It's really simple, and it comes straight from the Bible. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Have it right here. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. If you declare that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all you need to do, and you can do it right now. You can say, Jesus, I'm weary of a life full of the burden of sin. I need you to take that burden from me. It's too much to carry. I believe that you died for me to remove that burden and that you rose again in triumph over death. Please come and be the Lord of my life and show me what it is to live life to the full. And when we do that, God promises this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Our sins are paid for and we have been set free. You know, that's a pretty good message. God created and it was good. We messed it up with our sin, and then God orchestrated all of human history to prepare for the arrival of Jesus. Jesus came, and after a time of ministry, he paid the penalty for our sin and rose bodily from the dead in triumph over death. His disciples, those who walked with him and talked with him, went from being scattered and broken to going into the world to tell people this message. Many of them were killed for sharing it, but that didn't stop the world. So here we are, 2,000 years later, or what seems to God like a few hours, and we have the privilege of hearing and sharing the same message, the good news about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this is truly great news uh, that you have brought us a Savior. And Lord, we just thank you for what that means. Thank you for the way you have orchestrated history. Thank you for the way you continue to work and move and guide. Lord, we just ask that you would uh, just show us your truth day in, day out. And thank you for the way you have loved each and every one of us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.